Good evening. It's a great pleasure to be undertaking this online lecture for Gresham College. I cannot, I consider there to be great parallels and mutual aims between the work of the Victoria and Albert Museum and Gresham College. Two institutions, both historically shaped by the influences of great scholars and pioneers, with a hungry pursuit of knowledge. Instruction and education have been key elements of our place in the world since our foundations. And today we're joined by the standard of our academic contribution, our insistence on the accessibility of education in civic life, and as we can see this evening, our commitment to expand this reach digitally. But the most tangible of these connections between the V&A and Gresham is the remarkable 16th century gold signet ring presented to the military engineer Sir Richard Lee by Sir Thomas Gresham and enamelled with Gresham's green grasshopper badge that resides in the V&A's jewellery gallery. The Victorian Albert Museum was born of the Great Exhibition of 1851, that extraordinary gathering in London's Hyde Park which brought together a display of the world's greatest technological, design, manufacturing and artistic artefacts under Joseph Paxton's glass and steel Crystal Palace Dome. For chauvinists of the era, the Great Exhibition was testament to Great Britain's place as workshop of the world and capital city of the greatest empire since the Romans. But to Prince Albert and Henry Cole, its progenitors, the exhibition was a wake-up call to British industry that it was falling behind its global competitors. Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels understood the great exhibition in a different light. They saw it as an awesome example of the globalisation of capital which they had predicted in the manifesto of the Communist Party. This exhibition is a striking proof of the concentrated power with which modern large-scale industry is everywhere demolishing national barriers and increasingly blurring local peculiarities of production, society and national character among all peoples. Indeed, Karl Marx would go on to describe the Great Exhibition as the quintessential emblem of the capitalist fetishism of commodities and in the process provide the beginnings of the intellectual arsenal for Walter Benjamin's celebrated arcades projects. But it was from the profits of the Great Exhibition of 1851 that Prince Albert was able to endow the South Kensington Museum and its original collections come from some of the exhibits in the Hyde Park display. Prince Albert wanted the South Kensington Museum to be a storehouse or treasury of science and art a collection to inspire a new generation of designers, artists, engineers, and manufacturers. Visitors to the V&A today can read the heroic call from the Communist Manifesto in our prints and drawings study room, adorned across Dimitri Moore's political poster, printed and published in the USSR in 1936, Workers of the World Unite. The design represents the world's workers as a single monumental and resolute figure, dwarfing the armed figure of fascism. Visitors to the V&A can also see Engels' face, this time shown on a propaganda poster from China, produced in May 1969 at the time of the Cultural 
revolution. But actually, that's pretty much all we have on Engels in the museum. But across the capital, there are other memories of Engels' time in this city. And that's what I want to explore this evening. To think about Marx and Engels' time in London, rather than the Rhineland, or most famously Manchester, and how it shaped some of his later Marxian thinking. One accustoms oneself only with difficulty to the gloomy atmosphere and the mostly melancholy people, to the seclusion, the class divisions in social affairs, to the life in closed rooms that the climate prescribes, wrote Friedrich Engels of London. What is more, one has to tone down somewhat the spirit of life brought over from the continent, to let the barometer of zest for life drop from 760 to 750 millimetres until one gradually begins to feel at home. Yet London, this low-skied, pea-souped capital, also had its benefits for Engels. As quotes, one finds oneself slowly blending in and discovers that it has its good side, that the people generally are more straightforward and trustworthy than elsewhere, that for scholarly work no city is so suitable as London, and that the absence of annoyances from the police compensates for a great deal. Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels were famously Rhineland radicals, products of East Prussia, whose philosophy was deeply indebted to the German intellectual tradition. But Karl Marx actually lived for most of his life in London, and Engels too. This city was as influential in their political progression and ideological development as the continent. So it is only right that we reflect on their history in the capital. It was here that they enjoyed great personal happiness with wives, families, and perhaps above all, their friends, as well as painful personal losses and all the travails of bourgeois life. So how did Marx and Engels arrive in London, and particularly in North London? Friedrich Engels was born 200 years ago into a strict, conservative and God-fearing family uh, in Barman, Wuppertal. And we can see in the pictures the house where Engels was born, unfortunately destroyed by an RAF bombing raid uh, during World War II. The Engelses were textile magnates, and here are his parents, whose successful family firm was part of a local economy orientated around the production of silk and spinning of cotton, alongside the bleaching, of, uh, bleaching and dyeing of textiles. My reading is that Engels's was a happy childhood. His upbringing offered no inkling of a revolutionary destiny, no broken home, no lost father, no lonely childhood. But from an early age, Engels found that the human costs of his family's prosperity in the textile industry was hard to bear. Around him, in the Wupper Valley, what was known as the German Manchester, was not just environmental pollution, the smog, the red-dyed rivers, the stench, but also terrible social immiseration resulting from industrialisation. 
At aged only 19, Engels anonymously published his first critique of capitalism in a series of letters from Wuppertal, which traced the plight of factory workers, quotes, in low rooms where people breathe in more coal fumes and dust than oxygen. And he lamented the creation of totally demoralised people with no fixed abode or definite employment who crawl out of their refuges, haystacks and stables at dawn. Engels was not yet a communist, nor even a socialist, but at a young age he was a fierce critic of the human costs of capitalism, even as it enriched his own family. His conversion to communism came at the University of Berlin in the early 1840s, when, through a reading of Hegel and then the young Hegelians, and finally the figure we see here, Ludwig Feuerbach, Engels came to understand the nature of human alienation. Feuerbach, who interpreted Hegel's work in a uh, more radical uh, direction, had suggested in a strong critique of religion that in the Godhead, in the figure of the deity, man had constructed a deity in his own image and in his own likeness. Yet so replete with perfection was this objectified religious figure, this objectified God, that mankind started to abase himself before its spiritual authority. And as such, the original power relationship was reversed. And Feuerbach wrote, man, this is the secret of religion, projects his essence into objectivity and then makes himself an object of this projected image of himself and is thus converted into a subject. What Feuerbach was trying to say was that through religion, man alienated himself from his true essence. The more fervently man worshipped an exterior god, the more internally impoverished he became. It was a zero-sum relationship. For the deity to prosper, man had to be degraded. The next step in Engels' conversion towards communism was provided by the figure known as the communist rabbi, Moses Hess, who took this idea of alienation, which was originally a critique of religion, and put it in a political frame. Hess allowed Engels to see the idea of human alienation as political rather than solely religious. What Moses Hess suggested was that man was alienated from his true essence by private property and the broader money economy. What was originally a question of theology and philosophy was transferred in Moses Hess's hands into a political science. This is known as the move from idealism to materialism. And crucially, nowhere was this alienation displayed more effectively than in the home of the 1851 Great Exhibition. That Great Britain, the nation at the forefront of industrialization and capitalism, was the country where alienation was most advanced. And outside of London, 
Where alienation took place most fervently was in Manchester, the shock city of the Industrial Revolution. With its vast manufactories, its wealthy mill owners, and its brutalised proletariat, communists thought that the coming social crisis was all set to emerge in the heartland of the Industrial Revolution. The English are the nation of praxis, Hess said. More than any other nation, England is to our century what France has been to the previous one. If there was one place to go to see if the prospects of social revolution were going to take place, it would be to Manchester. And here in 1842 was where Engels lived and worked, sent by his father, ironically enough, to get rid of that kind of radical circle of friends he had picked up in Berlin. He sent to Manchester to work in the family business. And from his time in Manchester, we gain the sublime, the sublime brilliance of his work, The Condition of the Working Class in England, for which Engels is probably now remembered more than anything else. 20 years after its publication, Marx reread it, and he wrote what power, what incisiveness, and what passion drove you to work in those days. That was a time when you were never worried by academic scholarly reservations. Those were the days when you made the reader feel that your theories would become hard facts, if not tomorrow, then at any rate on the day after. Yet that very illusion gave the whole work a human warmth and a touch of humour that makes our later writings, where black and white have become grey and grey, seem positively distasteful. Engels' celebrated chapter on the great towns in the condition of the working class provides the philosophical and journalistic spine of the book. But it's not solely focused on Manchester. The chapter begins in this city, in London, with an almost Wordsworthian sense of urban romance as Engels recounts his journey up the Thames um, uh, into London with the masses of buildings, the wharves on both sides, the countless ships along both shores. All this is so vast, so impressive, that a man cannot collect himself but is lost in the marvel of England's greatness. But Engels' point was that such greatness, such beauty, such wonder came at a terrible price for the capital's working class. These Londoners have been forced to sacrifice the best qualities of their human nature, that's that idea of alienation, to bring to pass all the marvels of civilization which crowd their city. The nature of capitalism was such that the wonder and brilliance necessitated this human cost. With echoes of De Quincey, Engels then sets off to walk the streets and quickly finds that the gay world of Oxford Street, Regent Street, Trafalgar Square and the Strand hides the awful truth of Seven Dials and St Giles, in whose rookeries, cellars and garrets no human being could possibly wish to live. Further east lay the terrible slums of Whitechapel, Bethnal Green and Spitterfields, and Engels is clearly inspired by the works of Thomas Carlyle as he recounts the isolation, the indifference and the egotism of industrial England. The dissolution of mankind into monads, of which each one has a separate essence and a separate purpose, the world of atoms is here in London, carried to its most extreme. 
The same searing critique of the effects of capitalism on social relations and the condition of the working class is pursued across each of Britain's great cities in the book until Engels arrives at Manchester. And because I know it as intimately as my own native town, more intimately than most of its residents know it, we shall make a longer stay here. For here in Manchester was where the manufacturing proletariat revealed itself in its fullest classic perfection. And his accounts uh, of uh, the cotton workers, of Irish migration, uh, of the slums of Manchester remain one of the, the greatest indictments uh, of the Victorian city. The Condition of the Working Class in England was published in German in Germany uh, in 1845 as a warning to the Rhineland bourgeoisie back in his home uh, town as to the effects of unregulated capitalism on social cohesion. A warning, in a sense, to Prussia not to go down the route that England had if it wanted to avoid class war. But before he reached Barman, before he reached his hometown uh, to write up the work and have it published, Engels stopped off in Paris. And it was there that he struck up over 10 days of drinking and talking, that incredible friendship with Karl Marx. What is there left to say of Karl Marx? He is a phenomenon who made a most deep impression was how Moses Hess described him on first meeting Marx. Be prepared to meet the greatest, perhaps the only real philosopher living now. When he will appear in public, he will draw the eyes of all Germany upon him. He combines deepest philosophical seriousness with cutting wit. Can you imagine Rousseau, Voltaire, Holbach, Lessing, Heine and Hegel combined, not thrown together in one person? If you can, you have Dr. Marx. Like Engels, Karl Marx had come to see on his own route that class-based capitalism progressively alienated man from his own human essence. And like Engels, he regarded the solution to this crisis of human alienation lying in the hands of the very class created by capitalism, the proletariat. The, the, the challenges of capitalism would only be overcome by the propertyless proletariat. This was the class who would solve the problem of human alienation brought around by the capitalist mode of production. For the next 40 years, the relationship between Marx and Engels barely faltered, even amidst the most wretched of circumstances. Fundamental to this friendship was a division of responsibility. From Paris onward, Engels came to recognise Marx's superior ability to provide the ideological grounding of our outlook. Marx was a genius, Engels wrote. We others were at best talented. Without him, the theory would not be by far what it is today. It therefore rightly bears his name. It was a monumental decision of Engels to step back uh, and to give so much of his life to support Karl Marx. This faith in Marx's genius was what convinced Engels to step back, to sacrifice the development of his own ideas and play second fiddle, as he put it, to so splendid a first fiddle as Marx. 
How can anyone be envious of genius, he wrote. It's something so very special that we who have not got it know it to be unattainable right from the start. But to be envious of anything like that, one must have to be frightfully small-minded. The next few years, the mid-1840s, see Marx and Engels at their most collaborative as they shared lodgings in Paris and Brussels and then returned to Manchester to research political economy. And they, they sat at this desk but, uh, next to this window uh, in Cheatham's library in, in Manchester reading the works of Adam Smith uh, and David Ricardo. Uh, and through their researches, um, they published works like the German uh, ideology as a way of understanding their collective political philosophy. They then sought to find a political vehicle for their views, which they did through the Communist League, which they effectively took over. And out of this emerged their greatest polemic, the 1848 Manifesto of the Communist Party. But the manifesto was always better than the actuality. And the 1848-49 Continental Revolutions uh, were a failure. And after, their, uh, and, and after their, the, the, the reaction to them, Marx and Engels uh, had to seek political asylum back in the UK. Although not without the notice of the local authorities. We cannot make a single step without being followed by them wherever we go. Uh, they protested in a letter written uh, under Marx's name to the Spectator in June 1850. Uh, we think that is Karl Marx's only contribution to the spectator. Jenny Marx, Karl Marx's uh, wife, had followed her husband across the Channel to London in September 1849. Uh, and the Marx family, with their three small children and a fourth one on the way, uh, Guido, who was nicknamed Foxy because he was born on the 5th of November uh, 1849, began to make their home uh, in London, um, in Soho. But with only irregular funds from freelance journalism, uh, poor publishing contracts and a doomed attempt to relaunch the Neurheinische Zeitung, Marx was in no position to support his family. Jenny Marx later described this period as one of great hardship, continual accrued acute privations and real misery. And here you can see uh, some of the uh, accommodation and the rooms uh, they lived in um, in uh, Soho, famously above uh, Quo Valdis. Crammed together with undernourished brothers and sisters in a series of grotty flats, their fourth child, Guido, suffered an infancy of wretched privation and fatigue. Since coming into the world, he has never slept a whole night through, at most two or three hours, wrote Jenny Marks. Latterly, too, there have been violent convulsions, so that the child has been hovering constantly between death and a miserable life. In his pain, he sucked so hard that I got a sore on my breast, an open sore. Often blood would spurt into his little trembling mouth. It was a desperate fundraising letter to their communist friend, Joseph Vedemeyer. For a lady of Jenny von Westphalen's lineage, there was also the indignity of her life with Karl Marx, spent harried across London 
uh, by bakers, butchers, milkmen and bailiffs as Marx dodged bills and blagged new lodgings. It was a debilitating, humiliating, sickening time and young Guido suffered the effects. Just a line or two to let you know that our little gunpowder plotter, Forksy, died at 10 o'clock this morning. Marx wrote to Engels in November 1850. You can imagine what it's like here. If you happen to feel so inclined, drop a few lines to my wife. She's quite distracted. Jenny and Karl Marx were to lose two other children, Francisca and Edgar, known as Colonel Mush, to the same noxious mix of poverty, damp and disease. And at this point, Marx, um, sorry, at this point, Engels has to make a decision. He could see that the poverty and privation which Marx and his family were living in would mean that their political journey, that their ideological responsibility to shape uh, the, the frame uh, of scientific socialism, of communism, would be undone. And at this point, Engels decides to sacrifice the things that gave him joy in life in order to be able to fund the Marx family. So Engels moves back to Manchester um, in a kind of groveling letter. Um, he agrees to go and work for the family firm so that Marx would have the space and the freedom to write Das Kapital uh, and establish the ideology of Marxism properly. Engels had to retreat to Manchester for 20 years, from 1850 to 1870, to work for the family firm Ehrman and Engels in order to support Marx and his attempts to produce this masterwork outlining their political philosophy. The two of us form a partnership together, Marx soothingly explained to his friend Friedrich, in which I spend my time on the theoretical and party side of the business, while Engels' job was to provide support by busying himself at commerce. And here you can see uh, the Ehrman and Engels mill um, in Salford uh, and some uh, of the, the, the cotton thread uh, that was manufactured. Manchester uh, at the time was a centre for the technological developments and the spinning and weaving of cotton thread that has so greatly improved the quality of English cotton available uh, to textile spinners. The blue thread in the selvage of the fabric of this early dress in the V&A's collection indicates that it was made in England, most probably Manchester. The roller-printed cotton furnishing fabric printed by Manchester firm John Marshall and Sons in around 1820 demonstrates the applications of the time. This was the world of cotton that Engels uh, found himself in. And the profits from Ehrman and Engels uh, up in Manchester, headed south to keep the Marx family from total immiseration and fund the writing of Das Kapital. Dear Mr Engels, as Jenny Marx was apt to address him, was regularly allocating over half his annual income to the Marx family, totalling between three to four thousand pounds a year, around 350 to £450,000 uh, in, in today's terms over the 20-year period that he was uh, employed. And that money, first of all, went to extract the Marx family from their Soho lodgings, 
what Jenny called the evil, frightful rooms in Dean Street, to a house in altogether more respectable Kentish town. Uh, so you can see, hopefully, this, this map from Asa Briggs's great book on Marx in London uh, of um, the, the original Dean Street uh, um, uh, uh, lodgings uh, and then how they move north up towards uh, uh, Primrose Hill uh, and Hampstead Heath to Grafton Terrace uh, and Maitland Park uh, Road. Um, here you can see Grafton Terrace, uh, where in 1855 uh, the family moved to what Jenny called a small house at the foot of romantic Hampstead Heath, not far from lovely Primrose Hill, uh, all paid for uh, by the money from Engels. Whilst, Marsk, whilst Marx took the tram down to the British Library reading room uh, from uh, Grafton Terrace to work away on Dust Capital, his three daughters were sent to South Hampstead College for ladies. Their weekends were reserved for yomps on the heath. Jenny Marks would conjure up a lavish picnic, mostly from Engels' funds, while Carl would buy flagons of beer from Jack Straw's Castle, the great pub there. There were games of hide-and-seek, the shaking of chestnut trees, marches over into Highgate, and then on the walk back to Kentish Town, Marks would lead his family in renditions of German folk songs and great chunks of Dante and Shakespeare. We really thought we were living in a magic castle, as Jenny Marx put it. And the, the daughters of Marx are always so in love with their father. Uh, and meanwhile, poor old Engels was counting cotton reels uh, in Manchester. The, the day that manuscript is sent off, I shall drink myself to kingdom come, Engels promised Marx in 1865. Inevitably, it would take another couple of years before volume one uh, of Capital, of Dust Capital, uh, was published in 1867, what Marx called this economy shit. But when it appeared, the relief was tangible. All of the sacrifice, the boredom, the barren frustration of the Manchester years had been worth it. I am exceedingly gratified by this whole turn of events, Firstly, for its own sake, secondly, for your sake in particular and your wife's, and thirdly, because it really is time things looked up, Engels wrote to Marx in a heartfelt letter. There is nothing I long for so much as for release from this vile commerce, which is completely demoralising me with all the time it is wasting. For as long as I am in it, I am good for nothing else. And here's one of uh, Engels' uh, accommodations in Manchester. Without you, I would never have been able to bring this work to a conclusion, Marx wrote back to Engels with a rather guilty air. And I can assure you, it always weighed like a nightmare on my conscience, that you were allowing your fine energies to be squandered and to rust in commerce, chiefly for my sake, and into the bargain you had to share all my petty miseries as well. But thoughtlessly, in a very Marx way, he chose not to dedicate the work to Engels, Instead, the mercenary Marx gave that honour to Wilhelm Wolff, who had died in 1864, leaving him a very welcome £843 in his will. But with Capital finally published, Engels could not wait to leave Manchester. After a series of protracted negotiations with his business, business partner, Godfrey Ehrman, Engels was bought out of the business, and he now too headed south to London. 
The move to the capital for Engels was arranged by Jenny Marks. I have now found a house which charms all of us because of its wonderful open situation, she wrote in July 1870. She knew exactly what Engels would need for his new life. Four, ideally five bedrooms, a study, two living rooms, a kitchen, and nothing on too steep a gradient. It is next to Primrose Hill, so all the front rooms have the finest and openest view and air. And round about in the side streets, there are shops of all sorts, so your wife, Lizzie Burns, will be able to buy everything herself. The interior of the house boasted an impressive kitchen and a very spacious bathroom with large bathtub. Primrose Hill, and here you can see the, the house as it still stands today, 122 Regents Park Road. Um, Primrose Hill had been the subject during the preceding 30 years to exactly the kind of class-based urban planning Engels had chronicled in the condition of the working class in England. Previously a secluded district of cottages and farms on the edges of London, it had gained a rough seedy reputation thanks to its proximity to Chalk Farm Tavern, a notorious drinking and fighting shop. But gentrification came in the mid-19th century as Lord Southampton and Eton College estates started to lay out a model village. Alongside the developers, the railway had also been at work shaping Engels' new neighbourhood. The track from Euston Station to Birmingham New Street created a natural northern uh, and eastern boundary, which was completed to the south by the Regent's Canal. Behind the streets fashionable, neo-Regency veneer was a London suburb hammered into shape by the messy, dirty forces of industrialisation. With the trains came hundreds of engineers, signalmen, lampmen, porters, shutters and cleaners who provided tenants for the subdivided houses and thirsty customers for the plentiful pubs. Uh, Primrose Hill still has an extraordinary number uh, of pubs in a very small area. Today, uh, Engels' four-storey terraced home at 122 Regents Park Road stands opposite the Queen's Pub uh, and diagonally across the entrance uh, to Primrose Hill. Um, and thanks, it was thanks to the efforts of local resident Jenny Hutt that in 1971, uh, the GLC put up uh, a blue plaque, uh, rather anodyne describing Engels uh, as a political philosopher. Um, Engels was a man of strict routine, and here you can see his living room looking out towards uh, Primrose Hill uh, and also uh, to the Queen's uh, pub. Um, the highlight of his day um, was to walk uh, about 15 minutes to go and see Karl Marx. Engels came to see my father every day, Marx's daughter Eleanor remembers. They sometimes went for a walk together, but just as often they remained in my father's room, walking up and down, each on his side of the room, boring holes with his heel as he turned on it in his corner. Frequently they walked up and down side by side in silence. Or again, each would talk about what was then mainly occupying him until they stood face to face and laughed aloud, admitting that they had been weighing opposite plans for the last half hour. When they did go for a walk, it was a brisk discursive hike of one and a half German miles up and around Hampstead Heath, where the Rhinelanders like to say they breathed in more ozone than in the whole of Hanover. This daily schedule had one exception. On Sundays... Engels would throw open his house. On those puritanical days, 
when no merry men can bear life in London, Engels' house was open to all, and no one left before two or three in the morning, recalled the communist exile, August Babel. All and sundry, socialists, critics and writers, anybody who wanted to see Engels could just go. All were welcome at number 122 for an afternoon of wine-fueled discussions, stomach-lined by a fairly liberal helping of meat and salad. The house speciality was a springtime bowl of Maytrank, a May wine flavoured with Woodruff. There would be German folk songs around the piano, or Engels reciting his favourite poem, The Vicar of Bray. While the cream of European socialism, from Karl Kautsky to William Morris to, William, to, to Wilhelm Liebknecht to Keir Hardy, played court to the man whom the British Marxist Henry Heinemann called the Great Lama of Regent's Park Road. Election nights to the German Reichstag were a particularly riotous affair. Quotes, then Engels laid in a huge cask of special German beer, laid on a special supper, invited his very intimates. Then as the telegrams came pouring in from all parts of Germany far into the night, every telegram was torn open, its contents read aloud by the general, Engels' nickname, and if it was victory, we drank, and if it was defeat, we drank. For Engels' house was indeed the hub of international socialism in London during the 1870s and 1880s. Marx and Engels had established the International Working Men's Association, later the Socialist International, as their political vehicle for change. And as the International's corresponding secretary for Belgium, then Italy, Spain, Portugal and Denmark, Engels was placed in charge of coordinating the proletarian struggle across the continent. He masterminded this messy, hydra-headed machine, all from his study at number 122, Regent's Park Road. Every day, every post brought to his house newspapers and letters in every European language, recalled Paul Lafargue. And it was astonishing how he found time with all his other work to look through, keep in order, and remember the chief contents of them. It was like a little Tower of Babel business, according to Edward Aveling, for not only those of us that were really of his family pre were present, but the socialists from other countries made 122 Regent's Park Road their mecca. Given such an extensive calendar of communist festivities, it was no surprise Engels was watched by an array of security forces, the French, the Prussians, even the Metropolitan Police. For Engels, who otherwise valued that lack of British state harassment, these hapless officers were a source of amusement rather than annoyance. We have every evening a bobby promenading before the house, he noted in 1883, as he and Karl Schorlemmer hid giggling behind the shutters. The imbeciles evidently think we are manufacturing dynamite, when in reality we are discussing whiskey. Beyond the whisky and the Bordeaux and the parties, what did Marx and Engels' time in London produce in terms of political philosophy? Let me focus on two areas briefly on Marx's thought, which might have been influenced by Marx and Engels' time in North London. The first is Engels' changing critique of capitalism. For Engels was in London in the 1870s and 1880s during the boom years the British economy, mirroring Engels' move from north to south, was shifting its profit centre 
uh, from the industrial manufacturing to the City of London, to the finance services sector. We here are now in the full swing of prosperity and thriving business, Engels wrote in 1871. There is a surplus of capital on the market and it is looking everywhere for a profitable home. Bogus companies set up for the happiness of mankind and the enrichment of the entrepreneur are shooting up out of the ground like mushrooms. The British economy was on its way to a more concentrated form of what Marxists would describe as monopoly capitalism, which they imagined would only hasten the coming contradiction. Floating, transforming large private concerns into limited companies has been the order of the day for the last 10 years and more, Engels reported in 1881. From the large Manchester warehouses of the city to the ironworks and coal pits of Wales and the north, everything has been or is being floated. Imperial London became the clearing house of the world and the surplus capital that resulted from this stock market flotation was soon at work across the globe. What this centralising finance capitalism with its wild swings, great riches and celebrated bankruptcies helped Engels to understand was the relentless instability of the modern market. As a manufacturer in the Manchester cotton trade, Engels was already aware of how global fluctuations could suddenly put thousands out of work. But now he saw this accelerating through the globalised financial system. Whereas Marx had only spoken of the shaking of capitalist production, Engels now spoke much more definitely of the coming collapse of capitalism. Secondly, Engels addressed the question of urban regeneration, or what we might now call gentrification. From his study at number 122 Regents Park Road, he wrote a hugely important paper entitled On the Housing Question, which interrogated the issue of urban space and class power in the context of what he called the spirit of Haussmann, christened in honour of Baron Haussmann, the préfet of the Saint-Departement, who had despotically transformed Paris from a cobbled, decaying medieval city into that imperial metropolis of Second Empire Paris of Napoleon III. And the term Haussmann became a template for class-driven inner-city regeneration. First of all, thought Engels, through economic forces, just as the capitalist enriches himself from the industry of the proletarian by exploiting his labour above its exchange value, so when it came to the property market, if land values rise, then old buildings are pulled down. As across London, you saw swathes of demolition, and in their place, shops, warehouses, and public buildings are erected. The result is that the workers are forced out of the centre of the towns towards the outskirts, that workers' dwellings and small dwellings in general become rare and expensive and often altogether unattainable. However, the spirit of Haussmann could move in other ways. Under the guise of security, sanitation or gentrification, Engels detected a growing tendency on the part of city government to exert what we would call its spatial authority in order to dictate the urban 
form. And London suffered heavily from this uh, in the 1870s uh, and 1880s, with the slumlands of St Giles crushed for New Oxford Street, Whitechapel bulldozed for Commercial Road, Victoria Street put through Pimlico, Farringdon Road put through Clerkenwell, uh, in order to improve uh, the fabric of the city, and in the process, dislocating uh, traditional working-class communities. But London also, for Engels, offered the hope, the promise of a practical socialist future. On the 4th of May, 1890, the English proletariat, rousing itself from 40 years of hibernation, rejoined the movement of its class. On its inaugural May Day march, London witnessed a bravura display of socialist prowess with workers and activists gathering from first sight along the Victoria embankment. Leading the procession were dock labourers and gas workers of the East End, followed by the ranks of the Bloomsbury Socialist Society, the East Finsbury Radical Club, the West Newington Reform Club, until you had 200,000 gathered in Hyde Park uh, for the demonstrations. And for Engels, May, keep it that, sorry. For Engels uh, the May Day uh, marches uh, heralded a symbolic shedding of liberal confusion from the English working class, who after the collapse of the mid-Victorian boom had finally discovered their socialist chartist inheritance. The passage towards an effective socialist programme had for Engels been a long time coming. He was always frustrated by the absence of effective socialist leadership uh, in Britain. Um, and for a long time, he put his hope uh, in w William Morris. Um, and there was these, these difficult periods where Engels tried to teach uh, William Morris uh, about the nature of Marxism, uh, only to hear um, uh, Morris explain to one public meeting, to speak frankly, I do not know what Marx's theory of value is, and I'm damned if I want to know. It is enough political economy for me to know that the idle rich class is rich and the working class is poor and that the rich are rich because they rob the poor. Um, and in News From Nowhere, in many of Morris's work, he explained this vision of ethical socialism uh, so brilliantly. But Engels feared it would take far too long to turn uh, Morris uh, into a proper uh, Marxian socialist. And who has the time to do it, he asked. And if you drop him for a month, he is sure to lose himself again. And is he worth all that trouble, even if one had the time? But what gave Engels such hope uh, about a socialist future? Uh, and what led to the 1891 uh, May Day uh, demonstrations were the gas workers' strikes uh, and the dockers' strikes um, in East London, beginning uh, in 1889, with the campaign to increase wages from 4D an hour uh, to 6D an hour, uh, and that wave of demonstrations uh, across East London. Reading the reports of the strike in the London papers, Engels was ecstatic. The dock strike has been won, he wrote. It is the greatest event to have taken place in England since the last reform bill and marks the beginning of a complete revolution in the East End. Hitherto, the East End has been in a state of poverty-stricken stagnation. 
And now this gigantic strike of the most demoralised elements of the lot, the dock labourers, has changed it, he wrote. And this was the point. What was so encouraging about the dock labourers' protest was that even the, the residuum, as it was called, even the lumpen proletariat, now appeared ready to rise. If Marx had lived to witness this, he wrote after seeing uh, the events of 1889, if these poor downtrodden men, the dregs of the proletariat, these odds and ends of all trades, fighting every morning at the dock gates for an engagement, if they can combine and terrify by their resolution the mighty dock companies, truly, then we need not despair of any section of the working class. And so London, Engels hoped, at the end of his life in the 1890s, might, as he had first hoped on that initial trip in the 1840s, provide the revolutionary moment that all Marxists were hoping for, and I have to report, still hoping. But if London did not provide the actual kindling of social revolution, it did provide Marx and Engels with the intellectual energy, personal freedom, and ideological impetus to form some of their most significant works. The old Londoners, as they became known in Germany, developed an affectionate regard for the gloomy atmosphere and the melancholy people of the capital. Its open, liberal acceptance of political refugees, market economy, and even-handed application of the rule of law, even to those dedicated to overturning it all. And today, Engels' terraced house in Regent's Park and Marx's bombastic grave at Highgate Cemetery are important parts of the historic fabric and broader memory of the city. He was born in the Vupa Valley. He died on Primrose Hill. His was an extraordinary rich life of lows and highs and a man whose influence would be felt right around the world. His energy, humour, intelligence, humanity, loyalty and commitments were all attributes uh, of this man. And as we reflect on Marx and Engels in London, it is a particular pleasure to do so on the 200th anniversary of the birth of Friedrich Engels. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr Hunt. That was a, a tremendous lecture, and you won't be surprised to hear it stimulated a lot of questions. And I very much hope you're going to answer a few. And I'm going to start off with a couple of questions about the supporting cast. Um, there's a lady here who asks, um, Marx's brilliant daughter, Eleanor, who translated Marx, has been lost in the story. Without her, where would have been socialist history? I, I think that's an excellent question. It's been lost in the story this evening, and, and for that I do apologise, because actually Tussie was... She was the one on the rallies in Trafalgar Square. She was the one in the East End working clubs. She was the one uh, actively propagating across the city. And there are some fantastic biographies uh, of Eleanor Tussie uh, uh, Marx, which are, which are w well worth reading. It's a tragic life because... You know, she, she, she falls in love with the dreaded Aveling and, and, it, and it goes wrong at a terrible level. But I, th I think the, the critique of the, the role of Eleanor Marx in the propagation 
of, of Marxism and the, the management of, of, of his memory, but also the theme of this evening, her activism in London, you're, you're right to emphasise it. Next question. So, ironically, Engels had to be a good capitalist in Manchester in order to support the development of communism. What do we know about how Engels treated his workers? Um, we <laughs> and that irony was, was not lost on him, I can, I, can, I can tell you, and also not lost on his, his, his enemies in the various socialist factions who are always criticising him um, for this. Um, he wasn't a kind of superlative uh, employer. He wasn't the most generous um, employer. We, ha we have accounts of you know, the dismissal of employees, as happens in any um, organisation. Uh, but there was no attempt by Engels, as, it as there were with some Manchester manufacturers, to create you know, um, health clubs or to support uh, extra learning or to, um, you know, take a strong lead um, in terms of working conditions. And in a sense, he, he just wanted to get through the business. He didn't want to make a beneficial contribution. But also from a Marxian perspective, in a sense, he wasn't there to make capitalism easier on the workers because what he believed in was the acceleration of the contradiction and the immiseration uh, of the working class in order to have a socialist revolution. And, and if you, in a sense, interfered in the rhythms of that, you were, you were actually preventing the pathway towards socialism. So he was neither great uh, nor particularly bad. A couple of people here want to know why is it that we emphasise communism to be more of a brainchild of Karl Marx when you have um, described the pivotal role that, that Engels played? Because, in, in a sense, Engels wanted it to be known as, as Marxism, but also, it, it, and, and from, from Engels' perspective, Karl Marx's theory of labour value and, and the kind of economics at the heart of Das Kapital, and crucially also his theory of historical materialism, how, 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 how society changes and develops and how it will then progress in the future, were the key contributions to, 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 to Marxian thinking. There is an interesting debate um, that what became Marxism in the Soviet Union and elsewhere in the 20th century owes sort of too much to Engels and his more scientific, even scientistic interpretation of Marxism in the later 19th century. And the, 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 the text people go to is not Capital, because you know, it's a big book and people couldn't read it. Actually, it was Engels' work, Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, Anti-During. Uh, Engels was the great popularizer of Marxism, but in a way which you know, some scholars and maybe some Marxists would, would suggest wasn't totally attuned to Karl Marx's original vision. Um, there are five people who would like just to know a little bit more about Marx's journalism, which clearly was an important factor. Yeah, it certainly was, not least because Engels wrote a lot of it. Um, so, so Engels would, would, would provide a, a, a lot of the journalistic copy. There's a, there's a very good a Penguin Classics edition of Karl Marx's uh, journalism with a, with a wonderful introduction by Francis Wien, um, particularly for the New York 
Daily Tribune, I think. So he was a correspondent in London in the 1850s, and he and he writes about um, you know the House of Parliament. He writes about um, economics, but Engels provides most of the copy for foreign policy and particularly for military affairs. And Engels um, writes very brilliantly uh, on, on military matters, but under Marx's uh, name. And again, it's a it's a it's a kind of double act, you know. Not only does the money go to Marx, but also the, the the kind of reputation and the reach goes to Marx as well. Hope you're on for two more questions here. Um, nine people want to know, and so do I. Actually, it's fascinating. Why were these revolutionaries tolerated in the UK, and were there any moves to expel them? The, there were no moves to expel them. I mean, I mean, there there was something of a kind of, uh, as it were. Not quite gentlemen's agreement, but but the, the, their activities were mostly focused on 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 revolutionary change in, on the continent. But crucially, they weren't terrorists. They were not interested in terror, uh, and they thought terror was um, actually uh, an impediment to socialist change and socialist um, advancement. Um, and so they would never support um, the, the the you know as it were terrorist activities within, within the capital. Um, I mean, they were interested in what the Fenians uh, were doing, but ultimately felt it was, um, was, was, was misguided. But also, in a sense, they were very, very minor figures. You know, we, we've given them this incredible place within history because of what happens later. But if you were in charge of the Metropolitan Police in the early 1870s, you know, the bloke in Primrose Hill and the other bloke in Kentish Town writing their tracks would not be at the top of your list of, uh, of, of public order issues. <laughs> okay, and the last question, which is the big question this evening, um, with a lot of votes. Um, so why aren't Engels and Marx more prominent in London's culture, given their massive contribution to world history? It's very interesting. Engels has become more prominent in, in Manchester. And they've in Manchester, they've recently dragged one of those fallen statues from Eastern Europe and, and, and put it in, in Manchester. And in a sense, he's, he's celebrated as part of the history of, uh, of Manchester. Um, and Marx has this kind of place, I think, within Soho um, and, and, and obviously also the, the, the Highgate ceremony. There's some lovely kind of walking tours out there and there's a, there's a kind of vernacular history. And then there's also, uh, for, 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 for those particularly interested, the Marx Memorial Library um, in Clerkenwell is, is, a, is, is, is a great space also to think about his place within the history. The, the, the best book on this is Asa Briggs, Karl Marx in London, um, if, you, if you can get hold of it, which, which, which recounts it. Um, but us sharing this will hopefully give Marx and Engels a, a, a greater place within our understanding of London's history. Dr Hunt, on behalf of Gresham College, thank you very much for your excellent lecture this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you.